Welcome to Ozarks Hates and Hooch. This ain't no fancy, academic, check your references kind of deal. We are two sisters from the Ozarks, sipping and spewing about Hanks, Hooch, and history. Hey everybody, welcome to Ozarks Hanks and Hooch. I'm Dawn, and I'm here with Dina. Hi! It's me. And uh, we want to welcome you uh, tonight. Dina's got the big story. I've got a little follow-up from last episode's story. Um, let's see. Uh, all this stuff I got to say. I haven't done this in a, in a while, the hosting thing. I feel like it's been forever, so I don't know what I'm doing. But um, uh, you can find us, Ozarks, Haints, and Hooch, on social media. We have a Facebook and an Instagram. Um, we are two girls in two different states. We were just laughing because Elvis is just staring at me. I think he's sucking my soul out of my eyeballs. So <laughs> we're sorry for cats and dogs and it's too cold to mow, but a whole bunch of different Wi-Fi's and microphones didn't. Dina didn't have her microphone plugged in, or your your headphones or something. Yeah, so she could, I couldn't hear. I was so confused, and then I realized that the cord to my headphone was not plugged into my microphone, and therefore I could not hear because of that. Dina is a technology yes. genius. I am. No, so I am too, really. I don't know how I edit this. I edit this stuff, so you can blame it on me. Um, we are on every podcast platform that I know of, including Facebook. Not that I want to give them uh, advertisement, but that's kind of a new thing. Um, so wherever you find us, please subscribe and give us all stars or whatever the platform has should give us because that helps us out. We also have a Patreon. We've got a patron. So please go on there and give us a little bit of love because um, it does cost money to do these episodes every week. So just a couple dollars a month would be helpful. We have a website. OzarksHaintsAndHooch.Weebly.com and it's Haints and the letter in Hooch. Um, and uh, let's see, I think that's it, right? Have I forgotten anything? I don't think so. Okay. I felt like there was something for we'll the- We'll catch it later if we- Yeah, we'll before. catch it later. Yeah. So uh, it's still me because I've got the cocktail and this- <laughs> The name of this cocktail makes me giggle. Actually, we all were at a function. Uh, some friends of mine and I, and I told them what the name of the cocktail was and everybody started laughing. So uh, the cocktail is called the Tender Knob. <laughs> so here's how you do it. And, I'll t and Dina will tell you why it's called that a little bit later. But you take a slice of either a Granny Smith or a Fuji apple. I think um, I actually had a sweeter one. Um, one and a half ounces of bourbon, uh, two ounces of hard apple cider, three fourths ounce of agave nectar, a pinch of cinnamon, and an apple slice for a garnish. First, you put the apple slice in a shaker and muddle it, and then to that muddled apple, you add bourbon, the apple cider, agave nectar, and cinnamon to an ice, in, in ice, and then you shake until well chilled. 
Then you strain into a double old fashioned glass filled with fresh ice. And it said, don't double strain because you want some of the apple bits in the finished drink. And then you garnish with an apple slice. So I'm usually such a stickler about um, doing the drink like it says, you know, uh, mm-hmm. but I let's see. I could not find hard apple cider, I think, because it's October. I'm not a fan of agave, so I used honey, <laughs> but it's really pretty good. I used apple juice instead of apple cider. Dina completely did something different. So, so yeah, I'm still ketoing, and that drink was like I could have the bourbon and ice. And one don't like bourbon, so that was not going to work for me. So what I did was, I feel like this um, podcast is turning into how can you drink and be on keto with Dina Gilman? <laughs> it's, it's turning into. But hey, I'm, I might be helping somebody out. Yeah. Yeah. So what I did was I found um, Fuji Apple Sparkling Water. Um, it's the Walmart brand. I used it in place of the hard cider. I used bourbon. And then I took vanilla sugar-free syrup and used it in place of the uh, agave. And then... It, my recipe, did you put your sprinkle of cinnamon in there? Because my recipe said a sprinkle of cinnamon. You could put a sprinkle or a pinch of cinnamon. That's what and I so, said. Oh, I thought I didn't hear that part. You're not Sorry. hanging on my every word. <laughs> I evidently am not. <laughs> I did that too. So actually, I kind of like this and I don't, I don't I like did bourbon. Too. I but, thought it um, really fall like. I liked yeah. it. It is nothing. It cut my flavor. My drink tastes kind of like a cream soda a little bit. Oh, because of the vanilla. Yeah, yeah. See, I don't have that. I don't know. It's good. I mean, it's really nothing except for the bourbon and the apple. But and the cinnamon, it's close. It's close enough for keto. Anyway, mine's good. So there okay. You go. Well, so the people out there who do drink our cocktails, if any of you make it right, um, like comment back somewhere and tell us if it was good. Cause yeah. I think this might be one that I might make again, you know? Okay. Yeah. I was taking another sip. Sorry. That's like all right. I, said, well, I so like it. That's the drink. And, uh, you can find that. I think this is what I meant to say. You can find that and all the links for the stories on the website. So anyway, I'm going to let Dina take it away. Okay, I'm going to do that. Wait, I may have to burp first. Just a second. I guess it's that water. I don't I'm so classy. Um, <laughs> that's what we are. Ozark Saints and Classy Hoot. <laughs> that's right. In our first season, um, I did a segment on the Shepherd of the Hills. And I'm sure just by uh, our little talk that we did beforehand, you can tell that this is an important place to me. It's important to my family. Um, my My husband started working out there when he was 12 years old. Um, I started working out there when I was 20 and I played Sammy Lane for 10 years. Um, just recently went back out there um, playing Aunt Molly. I played Aunt Molly last year. I'm not real sure what this year is going to look like. Um, my so my son's a bald knobber. My daughter is um, a square dancer. She played Mandy Ford last year. Um, my other son plays Little Pete. Dawn was out in the still show. 
Um, my mom and dad were in it when, um, oh, I forgot the name of the school. Dawn. Um, Warrensburg, yeah. Central Missouri State. Central, yeah, Central Missouri State when Wait. they did it. I played Aunt Molly, damn it. Oh yeah, years. I forgot that part. Yeah. I wasn't out there when she played Aunt Molly, so sometimes I forget that. And Jacob fiddled in the, yeah. in the band. Well, so anyway, it, it, it means a lot to us. It's just in our blood. We passed it down to our kids. It's just kind of part of who we are. So in that episode, I told some pretty amazing ghost stories and I'm sure I just skimmed the surface. In fact, I've since then I've found um, stories in my Facebook. Sometimes Facebook Messenger hides stories from you and you can't see them. And it's the weirdest thing, but I've found stories since then. So I'm sure at some point we're going to go back and, and revisit that. So I'm sure there's more tales that I totally missed. And so if you work at Shepherd or you know somebody that works at Shepherd and you have a good ghost story or a good anything story, just private message us and, and we'll put that down and, and get that on another episode in the future. Yeah. But anyway, I thought it would uh, I thought it would be interesting to look at the history behind the Shepherd of the Hills, not just the story that the play tells, but also the narrative behind where the story came from. The, so I landed on the ball knobbers because without their story, shepherds kind of double, right? They give the excitement that every good tale requires. Um, there is so much, I was just telling Don, there is so much information out there. And some of it kind of uh, is goes back on itself. I mean, some of the stories are the same stories, just on different websites. So um, I had to rein myself in because I didn't need this to be four hours long, just needed it to be like 20 minutes, right? Um, and honestly, at first I thought I was going to do this on Nat Kinney, um, who I'll talk about later, but I decided that we needed a broader scope of who the bald numbers were, and he'll probably sneak in there somewhere in a future episode too. The biggest part of my story came from Douglas Mankey's book, hill and holler stories and i have used this book before it is it is great and i like it because it is chock full of personal stories not necessarily his personal stories but he was related to everybody nice. so he he has stories that he had heard growing up and he has put them down in a book and it really is if it's a super good read and i re recommend it to anyone who has any interest in the history of the ozarks especially if you like your history told in story form, because that's the only way that it can keep my attention. Um, I also drew from several internet articles that have been documented in our extras. And I even uh, I even stayed away from Wikipedia. Thank you. I am uh -huh. a real researcher now. Yeah, <laughs> did not did not need it. Thank you very much. So here we go. The Civil War saw Taney County's young men joining up with both the blue and the gray. This left the area wide open to bushwhackers, which we've talked about, mm -hmm. and other lawless men, who, in the absence of upstanding men of the area, began to terrorize these Ozark Hills. Even the government was not safe, as many ruthless and unscrupulous characters began filling empty offices. Upon the return from the war, the men of the area came home to a much different land than they had left. Murders, thievery, and other violations were left unpunished by those given charge of the government. Between the end of the war and 1883, 30 to 40, I've read both numbers, men had been shot to death in Taney County, and not one murderer had been punished. 
spark that fanned the flames of outrage was the murder of Jim Everett by Al Layton on the streets of Forsyth on September 23rd, 19, or 19, nope, 1883. The following um, is an ex excerpt from the Springfield newsletter dated June 29th, 1913, and it's entitled Bald Knobber Breaks the Silence. So I am actually reading this straight from the article. So uh, bear with me because it is an actual, you know, it's an actual, it's the, the um, words are kind of faded and they have scanned it in. So it is, says conditions unbearable. Then conditions in Forsyth were greater numbers number of the trials freeing criminal, criminals were held became unbearable. Criminals elected their county officials, picked their juries, introduced false witnesses from the county gang who often came to the trials to intimidate the law-abiding people. It was impossible to convict a criminal. One of the tragedies which preceded the formation of the society of the murder of, was the murder of James Everett a saloon keeper of Forsyth about Al Layton about 1882. Layton shot him to death and wounded E.L. Everett, the murdered man's brother, under circumstances of small provocation. At the trial in Forsyth, Layton's friends stated that they would clear him or shoot their way out of court to give him his freedom if necessary. Layton was later offered um, a farce of a trial. Sorry, like I said, these words are super hard. Soon after the episode, the society was organized. It had not got working good, however, before another crime was committed. So there's a little, that's kind of a, a background part. In January of 1885, 13 resolute citizens met in the back room of a local Forsyth store to discuss the matters of lawlessness in their hills. Captain Nathan Kinney, sometime preacher and politician, A.S. Prather, lawyer and military man, and he is also a relative of Douglas Mankey, who wrote the book that I got many of my stories from. Uh, E.L. Everett, Forsyth merchant, and he's the owner of the back room that they were meeting in. J.B. Rice, later judge and Union Army veteran. G.E. Branson, later elected sheriff. T.W. Phillips, captain during the Civil War. J.K. McAfee, also later elected sheriff and president of the Bank of Taney County. J.J. Brown, he was an attorney and writer of the bylaws of the organization. I.A. DeLong, attorney and stepson of Kenny. Captain J.B. Van Zant, war veteran and state representative. Pat F. Fickle, have no information on him. No information on Charles H. Groom and Ben Price, who was an attorney. I included their occupations to show that these were not ordinary men. They were upstanding citizens, men who saw the problems of the time, and they took steps to make their home a safer place for their families and neighbors. That's the thought process that the Bald Nevers were born from. Organized under the name of League of Law and Order, they took an oath to assist in the enforcement of the law, to report all lawbreakers, to assist one another and all under penalty of death. As the organization grew, Nat Kinney was elected their leader. The name Bald Knobber came from their meeting on the Bald Knobs in the area. 
This allowed for no eavesdropping or spying from the anti-bald knobbers. The anti-bald knobbers was a group that was obviously um, not in agreement with the bald knobbers. Uh -huh. They do play a role later on in the story. The meetings held on the ball knobs were to initiate new members and to discuss and hold court on area lawbreakers. At first, the people of the hills appreciated the protection of the ball knobbers. After years of lawlessness, they brought a feeling of safety to the Ozarks. That sense of well-being soon proved to be false as the group grew to hundreds of members out of a county of 7,000. The original intent of the League of Law and Order began to wane. Soon, they were up to all sorts of devilment, as Jim Lane would say, if you ever seen the show. <laughs> uh -huh. I had to put that in there. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Frank and Tuple Taylor lived northeast of Forsyth and had been involved in numerous minor offenses. John T. Dickinson and his wife owned and operated a general store at Dickens, Missouri. Let me tell you, Dickens, Missouri is literally 15 minutes from my doorstep. Um, Frank and Tubal Taylor went to the Dickinson store and tried to buy a pair of boots on credit. Being well acquainted with their reputation, Mr. Dickinson refused credit. The Taylor brothers drew revolvers, shot both the old people, and fled to the hills. Learning that Mr. and Mrs. Dickinson were recovering from their wounds, the Taylors came to Forsyth and surrendered to the sheriff. Um, and this is, this is from, I think, the Hills and Holler, or I might... It says, I am now 84 years of age, and I have never heard of, of any deal between the Taylors and the bald knobbers, as stated in the Hayworth story. Sorry, Such a deal may have been struck with the sheriff or some other officer, but not to my knowledge or by any record. The Taylors were lodged in jail in, the, in Forsyth. That night, a large band of horsemen rode into Forsyth. They were not masked. They rode around the courthouse square and warned all persons to remain indoors. The Taylor brothers were taken from the jail and hanged from the branch of a large oak tree a little north of the present Cedar Square in Forsyth, which is literally five minutes from my house. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Following the hanging of the Taylor brothers, a movement arose in strong opposition to the bald knobbers. The opposition was known as the militia and also as anti-bald knobbers. Petitions against the ball numbers were sent to Governor Marmaduke of Missouri. Um, the Springfield Newsletter article gives us a little bit more information. I'm going to go back to this. And once again, I apologize. I really did read through this, but it is, it is really hard yeah. to read. Yeah. Um, okay. So in the Hill and Holler, they say Frank and Tubal Taylor. But in this article, they say George and Tubal Taylor. So I don't know. Um, George and Tubal Taylor, residents of Forsyth, became half drunk and went to Taneyville, a small cross-country store place five miles from Forsyth, and started trouble with J.T. Dickinson, the storekeeper. They insisted that he sell goods to them on credit. He refused. They started to rob the store, and when he resisted, they shot him down. His wife came in from the living room, and they shot her. Both the man and woman had fallen and the Taylor boys thought they had killed them, but the victims afterward recovered from their wounds. The Taylor boys left the county and a reward was offered for their arrest. Friends of the Taylor boys thought it would be a good joke to arrest the boys and bring them to Forsyth, so secure the $500 reward and then free them on trial. They were brought back and placed in the Taney County Jail. The open boasts made by their friends and so incensed the law-abiding people 
when the ball knobbers at the time, who the ball knobbers at the time represented, that they secretly went to the jail a few evenings after Flirt and took the Taylor boys out and hung them. We didn't meddle much with small matters, the former ball knobber declared. We simply wanted to teach the lawbreakers a few lessons in justice. It was only the most aggravated cases that we took in hand. Hmm. The organization had spread to the neighboring counties at this time, and a branch was formed in Christian County, led by Captain Dave Walker. Captain Walker was an upright citizen who confined the knobber's activity to moonshiners and timber thieves. On March 11, 1877, Walker's bald numbers met at a smelter near Sparta and Chadwick to discuss such offenders. They wore black masks with some white wool for beards. They had openings for eyes and mouth, and crude horns had been fashioned that stood upright or dangled over their faces. William Walker was initiated that night, who was the son of Captain Walker. At 10 p.m., the meeting disbanded. Captain Walker and William Walker, along with others, including John Wiley Matthews, took the Ridge Road home between Sparta and Chadwick. William and some of the younger men stopped at the home of the Edens and Greens, men they believed deserved a whipping. They had spoken ill of the Knobbers. James Eden lived in a one-room cabin off the Ridge Road. That evening, he and his wife had company, their son-in-law, Charles Green, and his wife, Melvina, and William Edens, their son, and his wife, Emma. Learning that the group was together, the young bald knobbers attacked the cabin. When it was all said and done, Charles Green and William Edens were dead, and the elder Edens was horribly wounded by an axe. Mrs. Green was able to grab the mask off a wounded William Walker, shot in the leg, or some stories say he was, it was an axe, I'm not sure. Getting a good look at him, she was able to identify him to local authorities. So I have a sidebar here. I have to stop and mention the movie Bald Knobbers. Um, it was made by uh, Michael John Johnson and Bear Creek Productions. Um, I believe that a version of this story is told during that movie. You can find it on Amazon. It's super long, but if you're from this area, there are a lot of um, local actors in it, including my husband. Um, so it just so happens that the neighbor that finds the woman or the women the next morning is played by none other than my husband. But if you look in the credits, it says it's his brother, Brian, but it's uh -huh. not. <laughs> it's him. So anyway, I just had to add that. Um, this next part comes from the state of the Ozarks as told by Chick Allen. The sheriff confronted the young William Walker and he confessed after the confession, the knobber was hauled off to Springfield Jail, and soon 25 men were arrested and confined under heavy guard in, all, in an old hall in Ozark because the jail was too small. One of the men escaped. The others began squealing on each other. The grand jury in Ozark started a serious investigation, and the charges ranged from unlawful assembly to first-degree murder. The man who escaped was tricked into going to West Plains by a so-called friend to see his sister, and the sheriff was there to meet him. He was arrested and sent to jail with the others to await trial. In March, a year after the murders, the trial began. The young escapee was the first to be tried. 
Three of the knobbers turned state's evidence to save their own skins. It was proven that the shotgun belonged to the young escapee and the older farmer's daughter identified, identified him as the man she had unmasked. He still carried a scar on his leg where the bullet had ripped into it. The defense attorney tried to impress the jury that the boy was only 17 years old, but it did not impress them. He was found guilty and sentenced to death. Four men, including the deacon, were sentenced to hang by the neck until they were dead. The balance of the men pled guilty and received sentences from a few months to 25 years. The Supreme judges held, upheld the decisions of the Ozark Court as they were all guilty, guilty of committing barbarous murders. The morning after the prisoners were told of the decision, the sheriff found a hole in the wall of the jail. The deacon, who is uh, Captain Walker, and a member of his family. Oh, I'm sorry, that's not true. The deacon and a member of his family were missing. A posse was formed and a reward offered for the capture of two, the two men. The next day, a farmer captured the, the deacon and returned him to Ozark, but the other man was never seen again. The two men that stayed in the jail were Captain Walker and his son. They did not try to escape. On May 10th, 1889, three men were handcuffed and led up to the scaffold platform and black hoods were placed on their heads and the ropes were fitted about their necks. This was the sheriff's first hanging and he built the scaffold with three nooses and one large trap door so all men could be hanged with one drop. Ugh. He wanted to get it over with as soon as possible. That's like the hanging judge. Mm. But listen, it's bad. Okay. He pulled the lever down and the men fell through. There was a terrible groan from the spectators and the sheriff looked down through the trap door and saw that the ropes were too long. Oh, the men's God. feet were on the ground and their necks had not broken. They were beating and thrashing around, choking to death. The sheriff grabbed the deacon's rope and managed to get him off his feet and he choked to death. Then he grabbed another rope and swung the man high enough that his feet did not touch the ground. The crowd moaned and many fainted. Then the sheriff grabbed the rope of the escapee and tried to swing him, but his rope slipped off his head with the black hood. The youth fell to the ground, thrashing around, his eyes wild with pain. Blood, from his, blood ran from his mouth and he cried, get it over with. Now I have heard in another story that that was actually William Walker, that the young, the 17 year old that um, actually started the, attack on the cabin that he was the one that that ended up um choking to death the sheriff got some help but the young man brought the young man back up through the trap door where the rope was again fitted around his neck the lever was jerked again and the youth went through the second time the sheriff heard a terrific scream from the crowd and looked again through the trap door and saw the rope had again stretched too long for a second time. He grabbed the rope, but by this time he did not have enough strength to lift him. So the remaining ball knobber was left there. And after 16 minutes, he choked to death. Oh, good Lord. Is that, and that I'm pretty sure in my other um, stories, that was William Walker. That was the youngest one. Um, so then there's the story of Andrew Cogburn, and this is also a, a story from the state of the Ozarks. Um, one man who was beaten severely many times by the Kinney gang, and we're back in Taney County now, but stood his ground was Andrew Cogburn, who had plenty of reason for his bitterness against the ball knobbers. He called Kinney the old blue gobbler, and he said he strutted around like a swelled up turkey. 
Cogburn wrote a song as he became more bitter. And if you go to the State of the Ozarks um, website, I'm not going to sing it for you. I do not know the tune, but it is on that website and you can read it. Hmm. After the song, trouble between these two men became evident, and early in March 1886, when Kenny still was preaching at the Oak Grove School, he walked, marched up the path before the building and saw young Cogburn close by with a group of men. They met, and their hands hung close to their guns, and suddenly there was a movement, and the gunfire rocked the little church building. The smoke cleared, and the old blue gobbler stood unharmed, and young Cogburn lay dying in the dust. This was the sign that the end was near and the anti-knobbers sent out word to get him any way you can. Nat Kenny has got to die. In 1886, uh, Governor Marmaduke sent uh, an adjunct general of Missouri, J.C. Jamison, to Taney County to demand that the bald knobbers disband. Nat Kenny rode in with his band of vigilantes and publicly disbanded his organization, explaining that their mission had been accomplished. A few months after the public disbanding, Nat Kinney was shot and killed by Billy Miles, part of the Anti-Baltnobber League. And, um, well, I'll read the rest of this and then I'll tell you my story. The end came, the stay of the Ozarks again, the end came August 21st, 1888, when Kinney was in the store in Forsyth, which he had acquired in a lawsuit from a man named Barry. The hill folks in the street heard a crash of gunfire from the building, and a moment later, a young man named Billy Miles came to the doorway, saying that he had got the old blue gobbler for sure. When the folks went inside, they found Kenny on the floor, dead with four bullets in his body. The bald knobbers claimed their leader was the victim of a cowardly murder. Billy Miles claimed self-defense, but was arrested as a matter matter of routine and quickly acquitted. So the town rejoiced in the streets and said Billy Miles was a hero. Some said the shooting would be avenged, but nothing was done about it, and Kenny was built, buried in an unmarked grave in Swan Creek Cemetery. Swan Creek Cemetery is one block from my house, mm -hmm. and we just had the snow apocalypse, or I was going to go down and take a picture. Maybe I can still do that when the so I know, so today it was 60 degrees, but there was still six inches of snow in my yard, but I will try and go down there and take a picture of that and get that up on Facebook. Yeah. Thus, the reign of the Bald Knobbers was over, an organization that was formed to help the members of its community and ended with that same community condemning their actions. That's the end. That's really good. That Thanks. was really good. It was hard to just stop there. Oh, there are so many stories. And that one um, Springfield Newsleader article, though it's super hard to read, I mean, it is chock full of some good stories for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of those vigilante groups like the Jayhawkers um, in Kansas, they started out with good intentions. But mm -hmm. anytime you get a bunch of guys together and corn whiskey... <laughs> <laughs> well in power they just get drunk on power and yeah 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 so yeah well huh that was good Thanks. that was really good it yeah. was it was fun it took like I, this was one of my harder ones just because I wanted to tell the story well but I didn't want to tell it for four hours right right yeah. 
And yeah, it's, that's the hardest thing. And I always found as an academic, it's really fun to do all the research and get all the stuff, but then going through it and writing the thing is the not fun part. Yeah. 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 Well, cool. Well, I have, oh, go ahead. I was just to say, and there's so much like just the example of one story said it was George and Tubal Taylor and the other story said it was Frank and Tubal Taylor. I mean, there's so much of that, that in the, in the whole thing about um, the kid that was um, hung that ended up choking to death. Like I, I, many stories that tells you that that's William Walker. So it's just, it's, you know, it's just hard because a lot of these stories are word of mouth stories. It wasn't, you know, even this um, article that was written, I mean, this was written in 1913 and those things happened in eight, in the late 1880s. So, right. Yeah. It just gets changed from like when you play the telephone game, when you're in elementary school, by the time you get to the end it may not be the same story. Exactly. Because we all perceive stuff differently. And, and over, like you say, over time, it gets altered just from what mm-hmm. people remember and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is um, that, <laughs> that telephone game. That's kind of what I found um, in my uh, research, you know, okay. So remember um, I have an update. Remember, mm-hmm. I did Irish O'Malley and the Ozark Mountain Boys last time. Okay, so, and I said then, you know, there's a whole book about Irish O'Malley and the Ozark Mountain Boys by R.D. Morgan. Well, I interlibrary loaned that and got it. And so he never, if you, okay, just a little recap. Uh, remember, Irish O'Malley could have been a dude really named O'Malley, and it could have been Walter starts with an H. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I've forgotten. Okay. Well, I was hoping that this author, R.D. Morgan, would look into that, but he didn't. All he said was it was really Walter. I'm so sorry, I should have looked that up. But so he never he never even broaches that question of who it actually was. And then, it, you know, there wasn't anything that I didn't um, find elsewhere, except there was more detail because the guy had read a lot more newspapers by going, you know, to libraries than mm-hmm. I could find online. So yay him, his research was more extensive. But the thing I had a problem with is he would make a statement, you know, and then he wouldn't ever cite it. Like you never knew where that statement came from. Now he has a whole big list at the end of the book of uh, newspapers that he read, but you don't know what fact came from where, right? Mm -hmm. And in some of the other stories we've done, just because it's in the newspaper doesn't mean it's true. I mean, we all know that about the internet, but yeah. I found lots of conflicting stories in newspapers of the day. Right. So anyway, so that's all to say it's that book was interesting. And if you're, you know, if you're, you want to find out more detail about Irish O'Malley, um, then I would, I would get it. But if you're looking for answers, um, that's probably not going to help you out too much. So there you have that. There you go. 
That's my book report. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I have, I'm telling you, if you want some interesting stories, pick up that Hill and Holler stories by Douglas Mankey. You can't, it's got some good stuff in it. You can't, I mean, all, you know, it was like published in the 1990s. And so I think there's a couple copies left on Amazon and uh, you have to go hunting for it. There's one on eBay because I was looking it up as you were talking. Wow. Yeah. I have one. Um, you have I, one? Because Colin Lyrela is my friend and he said, do you want to borrow these books? And I said, uh, yes. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, mom was saying the other night, all my bald number books are gone. I'm like, well, I'm sure somebody's got them. <laughs> yeah. Not well, that's a, when I was doing the research, there's a book called um, Bald Knobber. Oh, let me look it up. Let me get the right name up. Um, there's my okay, name. while you're doing that, I should look up. Oh, Bald Knobber Vigilantes of the Ozarks Frontier. And it's by Elmo Ingenthron and Mary Hartman. Oh. And they sell it at Shepherd of the Hills. And I did, I did, um, Oh, I think I, I got a little information from it on the the swearing in um, some of my information when uh, I got some of the like some of the actual names of the 13 men. I pulled that from they have the actual names um, of those men. All right. Anyway. Well, I was trying to look up the guy, Walter Holland. There's his name. I knew it started with an H. Um, Okay. Thanks, Dina. That was really good. I just, I don't know. You know, like she said, Shepard is kind of magical, I think, to all of us. And Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. And so that was great. That was a great story. Thanks. Yep. We just keep going back. We can't get enough of it. Well, there's so much (laughs) to talk about. Um, So anyway, thanks everybody for joining us again. Um, Again, you know, you subscribe to whatever podcast that you like the best and leave us stars, comment, leave us some comments. Um, We are always anxious to hear what you have to say. And um, you can certainly leave suggestions for things that you'd like for us to talk about. Um, our social media is Facebook, Instagram. We've got the website. We've got a Patreon. We release on the 1st and the 15th of every month. Um, thanks again. And let's say goodbye, Dina. Ready? Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. And remember, if you liked it, tell all your friends. But if you didn't, keep, keep your, your big, big mouth, mouth shut. shut.